know what really grinds my gears? No. But I don't see you coming up with anything. Why don't you get with the freaking program? And that, people, is what grinds my gears. Christian, you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, buddy. I can hear you. How you doing? Okay, hold on. Okay. Hold on. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. How me? Hey, dude, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm about to brief for a flight here. Oh, that's perfect timing, man. Hey, you know, I already introed your segment, and uh, without further ado, this is uh, Christian Rigney, also known as Big Rig, and he's got something to tell everybody. What? <laughs> okay, I'll start again. I was just going to intro you real quick, and then you can go straight into what grinds my gearbox. Yeah, but I don't have my notes. I don't even have that shit with me. You don't have anything in your head? I have it in my head, but I got like I had some shit that I had written down that was awesome. Okay, we'll we'll call this as a trial run for what grinds my gearbox. Yeah, thanks for nothing, Ricky. Right <laughs> you guys. <laughs> and that right there was uh, what grinds my gearbox with our very own big rig, Christian Rigney. Uh, thanks for your your timely and uh, well thought out input. We really appreciate it. All right, folks, back to our interview with Captain Holzer. Uh, we left off uh, just about halfway through the show. Got some other great questions we wanted to ask him, and uh, I hope you enjoy. What do you think is the most important uh, aspect of your job or the one that you're most excited about? When I came through here in 1994, I guess, um, I, I knew then this is where I wanted to end up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, again, I can't do the math, but it took me a while to get here. Uh, it is, uh, this is the best job in the Coast Guard by, by far. Um, and I look around at, you know, we're nearly a 700 person unit and, um, I have people like you that are professional aviators, Mm -hmm. you know, every day you go out and, and you are damn near perfect in the airplane. You're creating some of the best products in the world. We try to be, (laughs) Uh, Hey, you you are, you're killing it. And, um, so like, that's not my wheelhouse. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I know that that's not my job anymore. As much as I want it to be my job, I envy you guys. Um, so if I had to tell you what I'm most excited about, is is I feel like the responsibility is for me to be the chief culture officer mm-hmm. here at the unit. Um, you know, I wake up every day, three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. My little legs start kicking under the covers because I can't wait to get here. Uh, I, I really can't. And it's to it's to interact in groups like this. It's to talk to our students that come here every Monday morning. It's to see the, all the great SAR stuff that our OPDEP one forty four side is doing. Um, it's watching our ASM, uh, uh, folks go off and train the military on how to do some pretty high level tactics. Um, I mean, this place is amazing and it deserves someone who's excited to be here because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, you know, I mentioned the culture piece, chief culture officer, the other, the other side is chief confidence officer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at how heavy we are, 137 officers here at ATC, uh, a lot of them at the 04 and the 05 level, you know, in the Navy, that'd be a squadron CO. In the Army, that'd be a battalion commander. Um, so like that responsibility and authority has to be pushed down. And, and the way that starts is by by having confidence in people to do things and say, hey, I might not know exactly what you're doing or exactly how you're doing it, but I know that you're shit hot and you're going to get it done. You're going to get it done well. So I trust that. So go do it. Go do mm-hmm. great things. Uh, so yeah, culture yeah. and confidence. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, sir. That's one thing I, I really like about you is your... Um, just your enthusiasm and your passion. And I see you walk around on, on base and, you know, 
you'll stop and you'll watch a 65 or a 60 flyover. And it may be the 20th time that day that that aircraft has flown over, but like you'll stop and just admire that someone is doing an auto or someone's getting <laughs> grilled on EPs right now. And I always love that because I still will pause and take a look at an, at an yeah. aircraft. And I, I think your passion is uh, contagious. And um, yeah, I think they might be, creating welcome home memes with Captain Holzer's yeah. face on it. I've heard oh, it's a drinking sure. game now too. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know what though? I, that, that's, that, that phrase is religious to me. Uh, welcome home. You know, the Coast Guard's got a diversity and inclusion campaign. Uh, the service, the country, the, the world at large does. And to me, that can be boiled down into welcome home. Uh, a place where you feel valued and loved. Uh, and, and every Monday morning, I say that to people. I mean, you know, Kenny, you you point out that I, I run around, I'm excited. I'm, I look happy. I am, um, on Monday mornings, you know, I, I usually have, I don't know, between 20 and 50 people. And I say, how many of you were doing what you wanted to do as a kid? Usually like 80, 90% of the hands go up. And, and I say, take a look around the room. There is no other circle in the world where you get 80 or 90% of the people who are doing what they wanted to do as a kid. There are, there are kids that pay big money to, buy video games to do the stuff that we're honored to do. Um, so, I mean, it, yeah, if, if, if walking around this base doesn't light your fire, then your wood's wet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I, I love asking, you know, students come in for their T course of like, did you know you always wanted to be an aviator? And some of them are literally from like the time I was eight years old and saw a Coast Guard helicopter at an air show. I knew that I wanted to be a rotor wing helicopter yep. pilot for the Coast Guard doing search and rescue. And it's just, it's amazing because I love seeing people say, I'm going to do that someday. And they figure out how to do it and they do it. And it's so exciting to be on the other side and say like, all right, here we go. You're like, you're about to touch the controls of the aircraft that you've been dreaming about for 20 something years. Yeah, that was me in 1994, whenever it was at Catpee. The mm -hmm. first time I was in an H-65, I, I slapped the table and I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of CAP, one of the best acronyms I think the Coast Guard's ever come up with. <laughs> <laughs> right, I wonder if somebody thought about that. <laughs> I don't think they did. Probably not. Uh, sir, I got to ask, how much sleep do you get at night? How many hours of sleep do you, do you uh, operate on? So I go to bed pretty early, actually. I, okay. I go to bed uh, sometimes as early as like 8, 45, 9 o'clock. Uh, and then I get up uh, about 4.30 or 5 o'clock and uh, okay. I tear through an hour's worth of work, get a workout in and try and get here around 7.15. Yeah. Yeah, because I, 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 I always picture you as like one of the most efficient officers that I've met. And I think it, <laughs> for me, like I just, I need more sleep and maybe I, I just can't get all my work done like from 5 to 6 a.m. and then be able to zoom around. And I, I really think that's awesome. I respect it. Yeah, cool, I, I forget the answer I'm supposed to give the flight surgeon each year, but um, is it <laughs> 7, 8? I think like 7 to 7 to 9. No, sleep's important. And you guys know that. We all we all answer the I'm safe checklist every every time we fly and um yeah, I th but, I, but I think everybody's got to know what's what's right for them. You know, what what are the things that make us human? And and those are the things you got to balance yourself on. Yeah, that's something that's important to like know what, when I am on lack of sleep, like what are my symptoms? What are my telltales that I can tell the other crew to say, hey, yeah, I didn't get the best sleep. If I start doing these things, yeah. that's a pretty big sign mm -hmm. that, hey, maybe if this is a training event, maybe we shouldn't be be flying today. Yeah. You know, Rob, like uh, our, Rob O'Donnell is, is working on a, a neat, uh, aviation safety project 
where it works on uh, knowing those signs, but then works on stimuli that you can get in the cockpit. Like in other words, a picture that flashes up, a noise that happens mm-hmm. uh, for for oh, wow. know, sleep issues. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, Rob Rob's doing good work over there he in is. the safety get, world, getting us a crash lab here. Uh, I heard that. You know, you guys know that we've got the flight safety officer initial course and then the recurrent course here. So we own flight safety officers, which I love because this isn't just ATC; it's also an aviation leadership development center and. Uh, uh, getting a crash lab here for our flight safety officers to be hands-on just like they are at the Navy school is important. So Rob, Rob and Dave uh, uh, are making that happen. That's that, great. That, that uh, original school, did we lose the lease on it or something? Uh, I, it was just, a, it was a time value of money. Uh, it was multiple weeks and it was a good school. Don't get me wrong. The Navy runs, I mean, that's like, you know, doctoral level knowledge of aviation flight safety. Mm-hmm. The problem is, a lot of it's tailored towards being a Navy flight safety officer. So, you know, you guys have all been to DOD schools. How much of that, if you were to like say, okay, I get it. You want to teach me Navy stuff. But yeah. so what we did is we pulled all the good stuff out of there, added some Coast Guard stuff. And so far the level three survey, so we're, we're a force comm unit, right? So level three survey means like how well is that person performing their job according to their supervisors and their peers. And yeah, so far the, the, the reaction's off the charts and that ATC is the right place for it. Yeah, I was a prior FSO and it's amazing. You know, I went to that, the Navy ASO school and the Coasties, like we fight to go to that school. We want to be FSOs and there, um, sometimes it's like, uh, you, like you have to go to the school. And I think we're always getting like the, the top score coming out of there because we're just so excited to be there. Yeah. Well, I think it just shows how we value it as a, as a society, you know, I mean, Admiral Abel, Vice Admiral Abel just retired, you know, he was the first person uh, who had the flight safety officer background you know making it all the way up to three star uh, now there's grad school for flight safety i mean it is a it is a proven career path mm-hmm. yeah sir do you have a most memorable star case doesn't have maybe not even star case most memorable aviation story uh yeah so i've got a couple um you know one of them was actually pretty pretty awful um it was a canadian experience actually uh, we were, you know, if you listen to Amanda's, uh, uh, chat with you guys, uh, a couple months ago, she talks about how the Canadians don't do B0 SAR. They do, um, you know, B2, uh, or even longer SAR because, you know, when you launch, uh, from a, you know, from wherever you are, you could be gone for six days mm-hmm. because their search and rescue zones go all the way up to the North pole. So I think four or five separate times that I launched, it was, you know, in the middle of a practice flight or, you know, a training flight. And uh, we would go up way north and uh, be gone for four or five days. Uh, but one in particular, we launched in the middle of the night. Uh, my, co- my, uh, I forget if I, I think I was the aircraft commander, Trevor Pellerin, uh, one of my best buddies. He's uh, just left the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was a co-pilot. I had three star techs in the back and a flight engineer. And we, um, we had to crawl up Jervis Inlet, which is uh, uh, in the Vancouver mainland. Mm-hmm. And it was about a hundred foot ceilings and, nearly no visibility. So we were doing the old Kodiak or Sitka match up your GPS, uh, you know, moving map over Mm -hmm. top of our track lines and the few visual points we could see, you know, directly below us. And, uh, I'll never, I'll never, um, I'll never forget. We had a, a buff, a fixed wing, uh, search and rescue asset that the Canadians have. Uh, it's like a dash five, basically high wing, Mm -hmm. uh, powerful engines dropping flares for us for two and a half hours as we, as we crawled up the inlet at about 35, 40 knots, uh, and they were just dropping a parachute flare, uh, so that we could crawl up the inlet, you know, like one every three and a half to four minutes. And I mean, I remember just sitting there thinking for two and a half hours, every three and a half to four minutes, praying 
that they didn't have a, a, a flare malfunction because <laughs> wow. they launch them with enough frequency that if they have one dud, they're not just, there's not a moment of darkness. Cause I mean, imagine just somebody flipping the lights off. You were goggled. We were goggled and they, they have a, they have a technique there where they can actually do them on the periphery so that it's okay. actually backlighting things. So you're never like staring into a flare under the goggles. Okay. Um, but yeah, we landed on a, a washed out bank up at about three or 4,000 feet. Some loggers, eight loggers had, uh, been running at the end of the day, trying to get back. They'd gotten that extra hour on scene. And, um, so it was at night and they hit a, we think a deadhead, uh, and it pitched all of them out of the boat. And, uh, a couple of them died on impact. Uh, a couple of them were, were pretty bad off and one or two were, were ambulatory, but, uh, we couldn't find a place to land the helicopter. So what we did is we basically just teetered on the back right wheel of the cormorant put the ramp down and then our Sartex loaded up the, the critically wounded people and we turned the, the helicopter into a field hospital basically. Mm-hmm. But we, uh, we couldn't go anywhere. So overnight what we did is we lifted back up and we sat down in a clearing maybe, maybe an eighth of a mile away and uh, you know, all night basically all of us just turned into uh, you know, flight medics uh, working for the Sartex wow. overnight. Um, is it because of the weather, sir, that you couldn't get back yeah, out? Okay. Yeah, so what we had to do is um, you know, we, we couldn't take back off uh, the weather had just, we had completely socked in with snow and everything. And uh, we had to wait for a hovercraft to come up Jervis Inlet from Vancouver proper. So we basically stabilized the patients overnight, Holy waited cow. till early morning. Then we were able to fly back to that washout, drop the ramp again, and then take the wounded over to the um, uh, hovercraft. And then we waited a couple more hours till the weather was good enough to fly home. But um, How'd you guys stay warm? Overnight, you said it was well, snow on the ground and everything? There was, there was snow, yeah. but that, that helicopter's so robust. I mean, it's, you know, a nearly 40,000 pound helicopter, three engines, a very meaty APU. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you're running the APU all night. Okay. Uh, so, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's no joke. I mean, that, that helicopter has 12 stretchers for 12 in it. When, you, when you're running that APU, do you have to consider like, hey, what's our fuel? Can we still make it home? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the burn rate is, is significant, but, uh, um, I mean, that, that plane carries a lot of gas. It's built for the Canadian AOR where uh, Amanda's probably going to be listening and saying, oh, that number's wrong. But, you know, <laughs> four and a half, five hours, especially if you have the internal 1,000 kilogram bladder in the helicopter. So Nice. How'd, uh, how'd everybody fare? Uh you know, split decision. Uh, a yeah. couple died before we got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe one didn't make it in the plane. And, uh, but I, I think we, you know, our SAR, the Canadian SAR techs are amazing. Uh, they um they kept a couple of people alive that definitely would not have made it had we not been there. Yeah, there. I mean, I've learned through this podcast um, more about the Canadian Sartec, and they are they're an incredible asset, you know, and and great at what they do. I'm excited uh, that uh, I think we've got approval now to actually do some training with the uh, Canadians from Comox at Ahars this uh, spring session. Yep, yep that's right, Sammy. So, I, mean, I just forward. just signed that memo uh, last week, and we'll we'll invite them back with open arms and. You know, if you look at the case that just happened in Cape Cod, uh, where we had a cormorant and an H60 mm-hmm. all arrive on scene at the same time. Now they made it work, right? We're, uh, you know, uh, you know, brothers and sisters in, in arms. So we made things like that work. Uh, but if you look at it, why that worked, Cape Cod does a boat camp every year where they're actually training with the Canadians. So, so there's a lot of shared TTP, shared understanding of assets and capabilities and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, with partners that we work so closely with, it's the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How did you like your uh, Canadian exchange program? Oh, it was amazing. 
very, mm-hmm. very different. Um, you know, it's fireman schedule. So you're, uh, you know, you're working hard for two, three, four days, then you might be off for a couple of days, mm-hmm. but, uh, but God bless my wife. Uh, you know, there were times where I would leave in the morning at eight o'clock on, you know, going for the end of my duty day. Cause I would have stood, stood duty from home overnight. Mm-hmm no beeps overnight. So eight o'clock comes, I go in to get my training flight now because you train at the end of your day. And um, two o'clock, that call would come up and they'd say, hey, we need you up in Yellowknife. It takes three days to fly to Yellowknife. And you're going to search for three days. And, uh, you know, so she had, uh, my daughter, I think at the time was like two, three years old. Yeah. So it would just be like me calling two days later from Yellowknife or a buddy of mine calling that I would radio and say, hey, call Leslie. Uh, I'm not going to be home for just tell her like tell her 10 days let's under promise over deliver I, mean, I feel like that's similar to the c-130s out in uh hawaii like hey that's we're right. gonna go do a case better pack a bag for 10 days because you might get stuck somewhere or next thing you know you're at easter island bone fishing yeah two days later, <laughs> that's right you know? that's right yeah we never took off i never took off even once in that plane without uh you know all the essentials underwear uh clothes an extra flight suit to last me about a week yeah so, that's impressive yeah fun times Hey, Skipper, what's something outside of your aviation tours that you've had where you felt like you've made a big impact to the Coast Guard? Well, I'd, I'd say a couple impressionable things. Um, one, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my time at, at CG-13. So um, that's military policy. So every policy that we own, um, I got to work on some really neat stuff, really great team there in CG-1, um, like, for instance, the new parental leave policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, most people know what that is. So I won't elaborate on that, but, but one piece, some people might not know about that I'm really proud of is we worked on a piece called the parental leave surge staffing program. So previous to a year or two ago, let's say a woman wanted to, um, put together personal leave, convalescent leave and primary caregiver leave to stitch together like 70 days to care for a newborn after, after birth, mm-hmm. the unit was responsible for paying for a reservist to come backfill if they even thought to do it. Okay. So what does that do? That puts a lot of guilt on a young mom because she knows that the YN2 next to her is picking up all of her records. Well, now at headquarters, they've created a, it's about a $7 million budget every year that they'll send a reservist in for free. So no, no unit interaction other than the request is needed and they'll, they'll, they'll bring somebody in. So that takes away that guilt for that young petty officer, that young officer who wants to start their family off the right way, um, that the the unit doesn't have to pay for it. Uh, so so hopefully that's you know, and it's been a very successful program. I hope everybody knows about that. That those types of policies. I never thought of myself as a policy person, uh, but but going to work on policies like that in CG one three uh, really made an impression on me. Yeah, yeah I actually, just had this discussion with um, someone downstairs about. Yeah, trying to trying to start a family and how they felt like they were failing in, in all aspects. You know, I, hey, I, I feel guilty that I'm spending time away from my child. Mm-hmm. I feel guilty to my peers because, you know, people are having to stand extra duties. And so I, I do think people are taking notice of the Coast Guard and, and the direction they're going with that. So they're yeah. very appreciative of it. Yeah, something I, I always... Uh, and my Monday mornings with when I do new student check-ins, check-ins is I, I say, hey, mind your account balances over your life. And people kind of look at me quizzically and I got to explain, um, is you have an account balance with, uh, with your wife, mm-hmm. with uh, your God, you know, maybe your church group, uh, your wardroom, your air crew family, your Coast Guard family, 
you've got all of these account balances, then you, and you take withdrawals and you put deposits in. So, you know, you go away to ATC Mobile for seven weeks to a T course and you learn to fly the, you know, the, the 144. You're making a huge deposit into your uh, proficiency bank. You're making a huge deposit into your nation's bank because you're, you're getting better at standing the watch. Um, but you're making a withdrawal. You're making a withdrawal from the husband that you left behind uh, who's maybe watching the kids. Uh, you're even making a withdrawal from your wardroom because your, your wardroom's carrying extra duty while you're, while you're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's okay to be imbalanced at times. Hey, Hurricane Harvey uh, happens, Katrina, uh, some sort of, you know, bad thing. And we all surge and we become imbalanced. We, we stand the watch and we stand it hard for uh, a month, two months, whatever the nation requires. But then at the end of it, it is incumbent upon us to go home and recognize the people that we became imbalanced with and, and bring them along the journey and say, hey, thank you for supporting me so I could do that. You know, I, I talk about mission and family and I never talk about them separately because they're, they're inseparable. You know, most of us belong to uh, families that have bought into this concept of, of service. So, you know, I mean, Sam here, you know, his wife, Katie, is an instructor pilot and a Navy officer mm-hmm. uh, over at Pensacola. I mean, that, that's a family of service right there. Mm-hmm. They've bought into the concept that they got to support each other so they can support the nation. If you have a spouse at home that's, not in the military. Well, they kind of are. <laughs> They're making sacrifices all the time so that you and your family can serve the nation. Yeah. And sometimes it's it's hard, you know, Katie, you know, at least she's in the military. You can kind of send a text and, yeah. and communicate that, but sometimes it's, she gets it's it. hard she gets it. yep. to be like, oh, by the way, I'm not going to be here this weekend. And you're like, but you said you were going to be here this weekend. And like, I know, but I can't. Right. X, Y, and Z, I, I, I got to go, you know? I want to. No. I want to jump back to the um, the reserve uh, that you were talking about, sir. Do you know anything about the pilot reserve program? I've heard rumor about it, and and what that's going to look like. Yeah, that's that's a that's a cool new program. Uh, back in 2018, we started working on that from a policy perspective of what would it look like to have a reserve aviator program. So we just call it the reserve aviator program because there's an enlisted side and there's a pilot side. I'll talk about the enlisted side first. The enlisted side is probably a little bit of an easier nut to crack because if you have, say, an AMT2 that pops out of the service mm-hmm. uh, but wants to affiliate with the reserves, so she can choose to do her drill time, uh, you know, one weekend a month, you know, the summertime, or as many drill periods as she'd like mm-hmm. um, at a unit near her, or if the unit will pay for it to do travel to to do it. So. I can see tremendous utility. And we've got our first two here right now. They actually showed up about a week ago. We're the first oh, cool. unit in the Coast Guard to receive uh, that because we wanted to aggressively participate in this. So we have two young petty officers on the hangar deck. And what we're these are basically, think of them as tryouts. These young petty officers will come here and it, to the degree that they can jump in and find jobs to do. It might not be exactly what an AMT2 or an AET2 would normally do. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something else because think about it, of the of the couple thousand tasks that a hangar deck has to perform. If you could choose 20 of them and say, hey, ooh, a reservist can do that while they're here. Mm-hmm. That's the concept there. So you get that same person coming time after time. They get to be a proven commodity and, and they're now a valued part of the workforce. That would be success. On the pilot side, that's a little tougher nut to crack, as you guys know, with minimums, proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, the Navy actually does that quite well in Pensacola. We, we all had Navy Reserve instructor uh, pilots when we, were, when we were there, and they're, and they're there to this day. They're typically commercial airline pilots. Mm-hmm. So they're, they've got their hands in the pod or, or some sort of uh, pilot in their profession. And then they come back and they pull their time together 
So they'll come back for like 21 days. Right. And they'll they'll fly, fly, fly. They'll be the X-Man or the X-Girl and and fly those uh, X's for 21 days straight. And then they'll go away for two or three months. Um, so I could see us trying the pilot thing at Pensacola, at Pensacola. first. Yeah. The other thing I could see is um, here at ATC, as you guys probably know, we just, we just uh, cleared the bar for hiring our first H-60 instructor civilian cool. who will fly in the plane. Mm-hmm. And I've got uh, Commander Wine working on the first H-65 civilian uh, instructor pilot that'll fly in the plane. That way when I retire in 2023, I can <laughs> maybe try out for that. Um but uh, but really, where I think a good application would be would, might be as, as a sim instructor. You look at you know people like Mark yeah. Wyckoff and Amy Baldwin and Dan Bowie and Jamie Carabine. I mean, those are those are us. That's us coming back here to continue to share knowledge and right. That would be a great application there. Yeah, that's cool. Thanks, sir. Yeah, I want to ask you about just your vision of ATC and and where you see us going. But before that, you you mentioned Harvey. You got any good funny stories about Harvey? <laughs> so. I was uh, I was in Puerto Rico for um, the whole Maria Harvey and uh, what was the third one? Uh, oh, goodness, you know how there was remember. like it was yeah. like that str- it was that awful string, right? Yeah. Irma Harvey Irma, Irma, Irma Maria. Yeah. Um, so I was in Northcom at the time. I had that d- deployable support team uh, job, and what my job was, I would go be a dual status command deputy, dual status commander. So anytime a state falls over, I'm using air quotes here. Uh, meaning like, hey, we can't deal with an emergency on our own as a state. Mm-hmm. And we, we've we set up these partnerships with our, our partner states. Like, you know, with Puerto Rico, they would have uh, agreements with, uh, believe it or not, like Florida, New Jersey, just other states they're you know friends with. Okay, we still need more support. So they'll ask for federal help. The way they pour federal help into a state is by sending a NORTHCOM team to start the flow of Title X resources. So they set up a dual status commander in Texas, and that's how we got Title X forces in there. They set up a, t- a dual status commander in Puerto Rico. So I was the deputy dual status commander in Puerto Rico. So I actually had an engineering battalion and a quartermaster company <laughs> uh, you know, under my command. So like I would I would go out and ride an army bulldozer for the day. And, uh, and that's like, cool. <laughs> like, what the hell is this Coast Guard dude doing? <laughs> yeah. you know? And what do you know about bulldozer? And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't know anything Absolutely. about bulldozer. <laughs> so, so I need to find a really good sergeant major. Um, and the quartermaster company, oh man, these were great Americans. So quartermaster companies in the army, they do your laundry. It's a laundry services company. And um, so at the at the um, uh, the civic center there in downtown San Juan, there were thousands of people there. And until you've lived and slept in the same place that you've worked at an unair conditioned place mm-hmm. with a thousand of your closest friends and not had laundry services, <laughs> you quickly understand that that equals morale and livelihood. And these people became the most prized people in the world. That's cool. Um, yeah, the young, uh, it was a Puerto Rican National Guard unit and uh, boy, they were great. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I heard that you also might've had to test your uh, emergency egress skills at one point. Um, what's that for? I heard you might've lost a car or nearly <laughs> lost a car. <laughs> Oh, geez. You guys are digging deep on this. <laughs> I blame, I'm betting I blame Sanborn for this. Uh, um, yeah. So it was around midnight coming back from a, uh, a night flight in Houston. In fact, I might've been flying with Scott Sanborn. I can't remember, <laughs> but at any rate, um, you know, just like here, flash flooding's a thing. And uh, I had this four door car. I forget what it was, but I was driving South down El Camino and, um, 
the car in front of me, I saw the flashers go on and then I saw it actually lurch sideways. I was like, oh God, this isn't good. So the next thing I know, there's this wall of water and um, it basically was using the street as a, as a, as a, like a canal almost. And the water, you know, about three, four feet high was rushing at the car. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. So um, instantly the car dies because the, you know, it gets above the electrics level. Mm-hmm. Water's coming in through, you know, whatever hole it can find. And it, it gets up to the seat cushion. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, this is like no joke. I got to get out of the car. <laughs> so, and this is how, this is how you can tell like when people aren't thinking clearly. So um, I was like, well, so I'll try and get out the door. So I open the door and of course I can't get out the door because of the pressure of the water coming right. out the door. So then I try the electric windows and the electric windows of course don't work because the car is off. You know? <laughs> and, I'm, and I remember thinking, it's, not, it's not it's only that, but, but, but my windows are broken, right? <laughs> and um, so the last thing I remember though, before I, I, um, I, I was able to get the door open and kind of like crack it, relieve the pressure and then push it open. But before that, I'm looking around and it's now up to my belly. And um, what do I see? And this is our fancy car. We had a fancy car and we had a beater car. <laughs> and I have a five or six-year-old at the time. There's no food allowed in the fancy car. So I, water's up to my belly. What do I see floating around me? Literally a school of goldfish crackers, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, you gotta be kidding me. So I'm gonna die here amongst a school of goldfish crackers. And you're angry that- there's even goldfish crackers That's here right. in the first place. And I'm like, yeah. fancy car. Me. we have it's a rule. Dang it. I, yeah, it's the fancy car. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, I actually went back to like the, you know, it was like four or five cars all behind me, all stranded and like group of us were kind of like going car to car, pulling people out. And it was That's kind cool. of fun. Yeah. Um, just jumping back to just the home unit here. What's your, what's your vision for the future of ATC or, or you know, what are you most excited about that we're doing here? Sure. Well, I, I, I love the fact that we're on the leading edge. Um, you know, we're not just supporting uh, the the fleet, but we're actually leading the fleet. Mm-hmm. And and it's a cooperative thing. You know, we've got 26 great commanding officers out there. Uh, you know, we've got a great force comm host uh, a command that that really empowers us. I mean, they they put the authority down to us and the program to to make it happen. Um, the Coast Guard aviation face is changing. Uh, you know, in 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 the mid 2030s, I firmly believe we will be at 127 H60s, mm-hmm. we'll probably be down to a dozen or so H65s, and we'll be at an all C-130J fleet, and then we will have made a decision to push forward on the C-27J or HC-144, but have both of them. But either way, this place will look likely something like eight H60s, mm-hmm. two or three H60 SIMs, two or three H65s, and one SIM, an Echo SIM to support it, two C-27s, two HC-144s, and the OPDEP mission will have gone away. Because as soon as the C-27s are uh, feet dry at Clearwater and NOLA has been flipped to Mm H-60s, you now get a search and rescue action radius that's acceptable for policy in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico without the HC-144s here here in Mobile. Mobile. Okay. Exactly. So so that's what this, this place will look like. It'll be an aviation training center of excellence. Now, hey, you and I both know that in a search and rescue situation, you know, a Katrina, a Harvey, this will always be a forward operating and, and staging base for, mm-hmm. for search and rescue assets because let's face it, we're the, you know, we're the largest, most complex air station in the Coast Guard and we have the ability to bed down, logistically manage and and project power from this place. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, are there s- uh, specific programs that you want to see expanded here or, I mean, you just talked about the Sims coming here too, but um, anything else that, that you're thinking a- about? Absolutely, yeah. 
we, we got a long, in fact, we got a list so long that it's, it's hard to accomplish all of it. Right. Uh, you know, I told commander wine, he's not allowed to go home at night until all this <laughs> stuff is done. So, um, but I'll start with AHARS. So uh, Advanced Helicopter Rescue School, which I think all of you guys are graduates of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, um, you know, a- amen. That is that is the best school in the Coast Guard. I, I Agreed. believe. Uh, it's the only aviation high-risk uh, training. Um, this year, we experimented with AHARS 1.5. Mm-hmm. Uh, and AHARS 1.5, we brought urban search and rescue into the fight. Uh, the vice commandant for the last 10 or 15 years, Admiral Ray, Every time we have a, a hurricane, he watches us hoist people off of roofs, in through windows, uh, landing in off-site landings, through canopies, and and he's like, he's like, Alzer, he's like, where do we train for this? I was like, well, you know, sir, we we train at the different units. Some mm-hmm. of them have better than others, you know, and you could tell by the look in his eyes, it's the wrong answer, and and I agree with him, it's the wrong answer. So, um, you know, we quickly brought this urban search and rescue piece where we we leased out pretty much forever. A, a bad town in Camp Rylea, uh, just a couple miles away from Astoria. And and we put people on rooftops. Uh, we sling people to the rooftops. We hoist them into windows. We do all the canopy penetrations. So we do that for one full day of a student's cycle. So that's 1.5. 2.0 is where we add a day to AHARS. Mm-hmm. Right now, students left on Fridays. That's gone. Now students leave on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. And they will stay there the entire time. So we bought a day of each session. And then the next part will be adding an extra week to each session. The dream down the road, down the road is that it is a flight mech, a rescue swimmer and a pilot requirement at some point in their journeyman life as a, as a SAR crew. Mm -hmm. Um, now, it'll be hard to get there right now. I know you guys know the statistics, you know, it's like roughly a half on the 60 side and a third on the 65 side have been to the Mm -hmm. training. Um, I want to creep that number forward. I, I know we can't darken the skies with people going to Astoria, but the goal is, and we, and we all know how this works. If you have a skill set in the wardroom, it transfers to other people in the wardroom. So we need to look at how we do that smartly. It's a resource battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so AHARS is a big thing. The second thing that I want to grow, and this is this is our number two priority on the uh, in the trade app side, is Flight Mexi School. Mm-hmm. If I were to ask a fleet pilot where do you where do you grow and train flight mechs, they would say, "Well, right here, we put them we put her through a syllabus." And I'd say we need to flip that on its head. That's wrong. Mesa, Arizona, is where we have a flight mech C school run by a contract agency, and in two weeks they get three hundred hoists in that same year. So that's two weeks in a year as they go through their syllabus at home, they would get about fifty hoists. That's incredible. You can cut their time to train in half. The cost is cut in half. And by the way, it's fun. It's mm-hmm. Mesa, Arizona. They're hanging out. They're they're having a great time. They've got these this virtual reality set up where you're hoisting on the high seas. They have a big warehouse where they've got a metal rig set up with a breeze eastern hoist and mm-hmm. and it's configurable to a sixty or sixty five. So I mean, they show up at their first unit and the and the unit is blown away at how proficient they are and how and you know when you're in the in the groom you say all right rescue checks part two for a, you know blah, blah blah they're just they're just rattling through it they mm-hmm. know it. Yeah, the verbiage is what gets me. Like I've flown with a few uh, graduates from that course and it's incredible how in touch they are with just how the hoist usually goes, whether it be 65s or, I don't know, the 60s, do they send them? Everybody. Everybody going? Yeah, Yeah, we have 90 something billets a year and we're going to grow that a little bit so that as soon as we've grown that, the requirement will be that Flamex go through that school. Okay. Right now it's just kind of like, as they can, but we're going to flip that so that everybody's required to do that. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. 
Yeah. yeah. It couldn't be a better, you know, timing for that school to really be ramping up than it is right now, at least for the 65 yep. side where, you know, flight time is short. So that's great. Yeah. And that's a way to get quality training without flight hours. And that's, that, that's the whole, that's the thinking smart thing of, you know, simulators and creative training alternatives is that, you know, flying the helicopter, flying the airplane, those are, that's costly. It, it takes time. It's weather dependent. And, um, and honestly, it's, it, it can be dangerous uh, when you look at, at aggressive safe training. Sometimes aggressive safe training means you're doing it in a, in a virtual reality mm-hmm. uh, setup or in, or in a warehouse. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I like the uh, common theme from both of those items, sir, that it, it spans uh, aviators from any unit and not specifically to, say, like the units that may have the most consistent big surf or big seas, just as AHARs, for example, it, right? Like. Anybody yep. in Miami or Traverse City or, you know, yeah. insert other air stations. No, a- it's, amen, it's important for Sam. Them. I mean, when you think about it, if you were to get uh, 500 pilots in a room that all participated in Katrina or even Harvey as a more recent example, mm-hmm. where would those pilots have come from? They're not all from New Orleans and Houston and Mobile right. and Corpus. They're from Detroit. They're from, heck, they're from Barber's Point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, that's the way that we fly and fight. That's the whole standardization thing is, is that you take any pilot, co-pilot, flight mech, and swimmer from any unit and you stick them in a plane and you say, go do it. Mm-hmm. And, and they do it. That's, yep. that's how we fight. And those skills are transferable too. Like yep. not, you mean, maybe you don't have big surf that you're going to go hoist or cliffs in, yeah. on a coastline, but you're going to know the techniques and the power management, yeah. power management, CRM. crew coordination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're speaking the language. Yeah. yeah it's, it's all good stuff. Yeah. yeah I'd um, say the, the last thing, the last big push is, is maintaining our, or, or making more, uh, making less fragile our talent supply lines. Um, if you look how we're creating C-130J pilots right now, uh, is they go to a civilian run training center and those billets can be dropped by the contract company if somebody else wants to pay more or pay earlier. Wow. So that's, that's a pretty fragile way to have a military talent supply line to, to run through something like that. So we need to own the simulators here at Mobile for every single aircraft that we have in the fleet so that this is the schoolhouse that everybody comes through and we control those talent supply lines. Mm-hmm. We're getting the C-27, the, the first success of that, that concept will happen next July when the C-27 simulator opens uh, down by Hangar 1, and then the schoolhouse will move here the very next year. So C-27 pilots will all come through Mobile. Uh, it'll be the first new aircraft we've brought in a long, long time. Do you see us building a C-130 simulator Absolutely. here someday, sir? Absolutely. Yeah. We've already got the request in. Uh, hopefully that'll be in a year or two. Have you uh, talked to Coast Guard Acquisitions to consolidate the number of airframes we have so you don't have to keep putting <laughs> new simulators <laughs> on the campus? Well, it's I, a joke. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Ryan's kind of giving us the side A over here saying that we're about time. So we normally like to finish with a question of just, hey, what's some piece of advice that you got uh, over your career that's helped you uh, become a better aviator or maybe to the new fleet pilots? Sure. I I would say for for new fleet pilots, buy into the wardroom. Um, When I showed up at San Francisco, I, I was blessed to have some great leaders, George Heinz, Pete Trodzen, Dan Abel. Uh, those were all my COs. Bill Imel was an ops boss, West Troll, uh, Chris Hill, who's still in the aviation flight safety uh, world, uh, Che Barnes, Dale Taylor. You know, th- that, that was the crew. Tad Wilson, who's now the ALC CO. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I didn't know it at the time, but we had a pretty significant uh, challenge. Uh, I orig- we originally were pregnant with twins. Uh, my daughter, Alex, we lost her sister late in pregnancy and then had a really rough delivery with my daughter. Uh, we were in the NICU for about a month and a half. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, was at, I was at home for two, two and a half months or something. Oh, that's heavy. And, and two things came out of that. One... When the chips are down, it's great to have like a best friend from home, close to your family or whatever. But the people that are in your circle at the time, especially if you just moved there, right? Mm-hmm. We had just moved there. Um, you can count on them. Like you can count on the wardroom to be that circle that will be there for you thick and thin, immediately, middle of the night. And uh, it's just, it's amazing what happens when the chips are down. You see what the wardroom does for you. Uh, the second thing is the way that my command treated me made me realize that you got to play the long game when you're taking care of your people. It's not just about what they're producing right now. It's what they're going to produce over a quarter century of service to the nation. So I don't know how the leave days worked out or, or anything like that. I just remember Admiral Abel, Captain Commander Abel at the time, telling me, go home, be with your wife, call me in a month, and then call me in another month. And we'll figure this out, Chris. Don't worry. But let hey, you know. And, and I'd say, but but but. And he said, no, stop. Just go home. Do it. You know. Here I am, twenty six years later. Uh, and uh, you know, we talked about withdrawals and deposits. You know, he preempted any deposit I had made in the Air Station San Francisco Bank mm-hmm. with this massive withdrawal, where the wardroom was covering for me. You know, he was taking care of me. Uh, so, you know, buy into that wardroom and take care of your people as if they're going to go make deposits for the next twenty five years, because most of our people will. Even with new things like BRS and, you know, aviation, you know, airlines that are hiring and things like that, most of our people are going to fall in love with this mission. They're going to fall in love with serving the nation and they're going to fall in love with wearing a flight suit. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing uh, today with us, sir. I really appreciate it. Oh, you, thank you for what you guys are doing. This is, this is amazing stuff. Yeah, you got any other parting shots? No, I, I think most of you are mustacheless. Uh, that's... Uh, it's pretty wimpy. Yeah, it's only, uh, I've, I've finally gotten my wife to accept, anytime I get a new ID, I get to grow a three-month mustache and then dye it and get a new ID picture. That's about, <laughs> that's about all I can live with at this point. So. Yeah, Com- Commander Sanborn represents the 65 yeah. uh, fleet for us. I think yeah. we need Sanborn and Johansson to like have a mustache. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, sir, thanks again. Really appreciate it. All right, thanks, fellas. Thanks, fellas.